0: Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I am honored to be joined by the great Virginia Walden Ford, School Choice Pioneer, member of the EdChoice Board of Directors, and the inspiration behind the feature film Miss Virginia. Today's conversation will be about her new book, School Choice, A Legacy to Keep. Virginia, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Believe me, my pleasure. So your book opens with a rather shocking anecdote, the image seared into your memory as a young girl watching as a cross burned in your front yard. How did that happen?
1: That's correct. Well, my dad was the first black assistant superintendent of the Lorax School District, and this was 1967, and as you would probably think, there were people who did not think he should have that position. And the Kuka Klan was one of those people. And they decided to send a message to our family. And, you know, I'm from Arkansas, so we'd heard about those kinds of things before. But having it actually happen to our family was absolutely the scariest situation I've ever been in. And so that night, we were all sitting around looking at TV or something. And. And Daddy went to the door for whatever reason and saw the cross burning. And as the cross was burning, we heard a crash. And a rock came through the window and landed in my baby sister's bed. And fortunately, she was not there. But I remember we were crying because it's all girls in our family. And we were crying and asking Daddy what was going on. And and he was so angry but so... He's so wonderful, and he told us, you know, that people are oftentimes mean, and we we knew about the Klan. We were well-informed kids of the South and um, black kids of the South, but he, he comforted us. And then at some point, we were all together in a room, and he and a neighbor went outside, and we heard gunshots, and that really scared us. And we found out later he was shooting in the air just trying to scare people away. But it was it was. Devastating. It was something that stayed with me for
0: a long, long time. I'll say, after reading the book, the movie is incredible, uh, Miss Virginia, which I highly recommend. All our listeners should run out there to the theaters, and if if it's still in theaters when you're listening to this, you should watch it. If not, you know, it'll probably be on Netflix or one of these other providers. I wish, after reading the book, that it was a Netflix series because many of the stories of your youth growing up in Arkansas you know, as the schools are just being desegregated, were truly cinematic. I mean, there was the anecdote with the bus full of black and white kids stopping at a gas station only to get shot up. And getting out of there, no one got hurt, thank God, but then seeing that the side of the bus was riddled with bullets, making a wrong turn at one point, stopping at a church to ask for directions, and and what did you discover?
1: The Ku Klux Klan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. You were at a Klan meeting, not a church. And then uh, why did you have to retake your math class, even though you were really good at math?
1: Well, you know, my dad was, like I said, assistant superintendent. So when this happened, I tried to explain to him that I felt like the teacher had been unfair to me because I was good at math and I shouldn't have been failing. And he Called a meeting once it was really interesting because once she found out I was his daughter, then she tried to kind of backpedal. But my dad called a meeting and he did a little research and found out that you know, a lot of the kids, black kids, have been failing because she wouldn't call on us and our grade was 50% of her grading, you know, curve and stuff. But my dad wanting to be fair. Remember, he was the first black assistant superintendent. We were his daughters, and he never wanted it to look like favors were being paid to us. So instead of just changing the grade, which I thought he should have, they had me take the class in summer school, which I felt was a punishment, but I got an A. So, you know, it became very clear that something had happened. So it went into her permanent record, but After that, so many kids that I grew up with, black kids, came forward and said, you know, I had that same experience. So I think further research was done, but I was a kid, and I got an A, and it changed my grade on my transcript. So even though I was mad because I had to go to summer school, I was glad that it changed my grade because I knew that the one thing I was really good at was math. And this was a geometry right. class, and I loved geometry. So, you know, it it, it was just disheartening. But, it, you know, it was one of the first times I kind of saw the realities of life. And I knew that my dad, as wonderful as he was, had to make decisions that was sometimes hard for him. And I'm sure that was really hard for him.
0: Now, you mentioned your father was a top administrator in a traditional public school in Arkansas. Before that, he was the principal at several others. Your mom was a public school teacher. You attended public schools. Your children, for most of their academic career, were in public education. How did you come to lead a movement fighting for school choice in our nation's capital?
1: Well, interestingly enough, my older kids were really academically driven, so they would have done well anywhere. They managed to find mentors and programs. We managed to find programs they could get into. But you know that my youngest son, had had some learning problems, he had some speech problems early on, so he was already labeled. But I also saw when he entered middle school that there was just such a change in what I had seen with my other children. It seemed to be less interest in helping kids move forward. And uh, I remember a teacher telling me something to the fact that I shouldn't waste my time on him because he was never going to do well anyway. And, uh, hell's a mother that. So Uh at that point, I was really determined that this child was not going to fail. I knew he was smart, but others seemed to not be so sure. And so by the time he got to high school, I was terrified. I was scared. He was getting in trouble. He had made some choices that were really, really, really bad. And we had a lot of gang activity and drug activity in our community. And he was getting, you know, pulled into the streets. And that really scared me. And I knew that I had to do something different for him. But like most single mothers at that time, and even now, actually, looking at a private school was not even on the radar. I mean, that was not even something we could think about. We were barely holding on, taking care of our families and, you know, paying the bills we already had. And a neighbor offered to help us, and and he did. He paid a portion. Uh, We chose a private school for William. There was a Catholic school that was nearby, and he immediately, immediately he changed. He became a student, you know. He started being excited about going to school, and people oftentimes think I'm exaggerating that, but I'm not. I mean, he would get up before me, and I got up pretty early, and I asked him, he was young, 13, and I asked him why to change, and, and to be perfectly honest, I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop or something, and he said, and I will never forget him saying this, he said, Mama, for the first time in my life, people cared whether I learned. You know, I've never felt that people cared whether I learned or not, and it was the first time he had ever gone to a school without metal detectors, and it was just something joyous about how he." spoke of that, but unfortunately, I couldn't afford it. I mean the little bit of money this neighbor had helped me pay, I still had a large portion to pay, so I'd gotten a probably a third job and it was just hard it was just too hard and I remember there was Dick Army and others were talking about a scholarship program, and I read about it and heard about it and I thought this would be perfect for my neighbors and myself if we could have a little bit of help sending our children to schools that met their needs better so i offered to tell my story and i told to the uh, house education and workforce committee that dick Army chaired and it was like one thing after another they kept asking me to come back and talk about it and then i began to talk to my neighbors about it and and we saw that Everybody was experiencing or many people were experiencing this problem, and we needed to change, so we started going to board meetings where they dismissed us, and then Mr. Army and others because they would ask me to come talk to members of congress i all of a sudden I got this idea, and I probably didn't really get it. Somebody probably gave it to me, but I got this idea that maybe we could work through Congress and members of congress and find a way to offer resources for parents to send their kids to better schools.
0: And that's how it started. Now, I mean, one of the things you mentioned about your son getting sucked into the gangs, what was so appealing was that they provided a sense of safety, which the schools did not. I mean, I'm going to read one paragraph from your book, the beginning of chapter 7, where you write, quote, As someone who lived and breathed the fights over school integration in the 1960s, it became painfully clear to me that nobody would march, fight, picket, or protest to get their children into a school in Washington, D.C. In Little Rock, black families gave up a lot to get us into Little Rock Central, as Central had a great reputation. But parents in D.C., most of them black, wanted nothing more for their children than to escape the city's awful public schools. End quote. I mean, that's just stunning. And so you then started to organize these parents. How did that go at first, your organizing efforts?
1: At first, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I was a parent, and I was also one of those parents that were always in the background. I made the cupcakes and somebody else gave them out, kind of parent. And even though I was involved in in my children's education, I knew that going into the communities and saying to black parents who there were a lot of factors, and one was there was a fear of complaining, you know, because many of them weren't public assistance, many of them had had not pleasant experiences with the schools that their children were in. So convincing them that this might lead to something positive was the hardest part for me. And uh, and I was, I'm not a natural speaker, even though I'm a natural talker, <laughs> I'm not a natural public speaker. So that was even hard because I I needed to go into the community and talk to people in, in larger crowds. So it was hard. It was very hard. I mean, the initial meetings had one or two people. Our people weren't listening. Our people were implying that, you know, that I couldn't help make any changes just by talking to people. And so it was really hard for me. But there were one or two parents, and it ended up being about 25 who listened and who said, I want to speak out about my children. And so that's what we focused on. And those one or two parents, which was 25 toward the beginning of the legislative fight, talked to other parents. And, And so it became that the whole domino effect. And that was just so amazing to me, but it was really hard because there were forces in DC, and I've seen them around the country as well, Told parents not to believe me, or members of Congress who were fighting with us, not to listen. That you know that mm-hmm. we weren't telling the truth, we were telling lies. Their kids would never benefit, and so we had we were up against that. You know we were up against the other side, which you know we had a most difficult time with teachers unions and and just opposition. You know people that just mm-hmm. didn't care about our voices being heard. Now I don't know whether they felt like we would be listened to, so that's why they gave us such a fit, but they certainly did not want us to be heard. So it was hard. It was hard.
0: We're talking now the late 1990s. There's bipartisan support for the Opportunity Scholarship Bill in Congress in 1997, but it's also opposed by President Clinton. And to your point, You quote Lily Escalon, now Lily Escalon Garcia, who was with the National Educators Association, the largest teachers union, saying that she wanted to slap people like you for, quote, making a cynical, false promise to well meaning, desperate parents. And that's, I mean, at first, you describe meeting with allies with the Center for Education Reform, Jeannie Allen's group, in a big empty room with just you and one other parent. But over time, You were able to organize a parent army. So how did you build trust with those parents when there are so many people, there are senators out there who, I mean, Senator Ted Kennedy is comparing vouchers to slave plantations. You've got the teachers union saying this is a false promise and parents, they don't know who you are. Why should they trust you? They've heard promises before that have never been kept. They're hardworking. They're just trying to make ends meet to keep a roof over their kids' heads and food on the table. How did you get them to trust you and to come out and actually show up?
1: Well, interestingly enough, I didn't at first, but then I told my story. Then I told them about William. I told them about the problems we had had. I told them about, you know, how going to a school that was better for him, really impacting him, how he changed. And they began to trust me after they heard my story. I think they started thinking of me as an ally then. And this is somebody who knows what we're feeling. And, and they began slowly to trust me and word spread. And I, I remember going to one event, because i show up at everything. I was in barbershops and hair salons. And anytime there was anything in the community, I would... Have, I would be there talking to parents and at one point I knew that I was making, you know, some headway when they, somebody yelled, there's the education lady, let's go talk to her and uh, or Miss Virginia or the voucher lady or whomever. <laughs> but they had these pet names and, and that's when you know that people are beginning to trust you because they feel comfortable enough to enduringly call you pet names. And, um, but talking to them about my story, they knew that I just wasn't another person that was coming in that didn't know exactly what they were feeling. Because that's always an issue in our communities when we're fighting for some cause. People will say, they don't know what they're talking about. They've never experienced that, but I did. you know. And mm-hmm. so they listened to me because I had a story.
0: And so you get these parents out there, they're meeting with legislators, they're showing up at rallies. The bill passes the House in 1997 by one vote, and this would have created the Opportunity Scholarship Program, a voucher program for low income families in the District of Columbia. It was actually a tie broken by Speaker Gingrich, sent over to the Senate in an appropriations bill, then stripped out by Senator Ted Kennedy. But To the rescue, you've got a separate bipartisan bill sponsored by Democrats, Senators Joseph Lieberman and Mary Landrieu, and then Republicans Sam Brownback and Judd Gregg from my home state of New Hampshire, and that passes the Senate, eventually passes the House, then what happens?
1: President Clinton vetoed it, (laughs) and I was just too through. I mean, when they told me or when I read the paper, heard on the news, I was just... Devastated, and that was that was the moment when I said, "Oh, I will never do this again," you know, because I don't want to put parents through this, and then have a president, you know, just cancel it out like that, and and he did, and I was angry, and I think that anger over time manifested itself into a, a organizer, a advocate, if you will, and uh, because. I remembered that I decided that I was not going to allow this to happen to our children. Right.
0: And President Clinton, when he vetoed it, I mean, he was saying it would represent an abandonment of the public schools, right? I mean, the other side was saying that, well, really the problem is just the, we don't spend enough on the schools. What, what did you think about that argument?
1: Well, I thought it was ridiculous because I knew... But, you know, by this time I had done a little research, I had learned a little bit. People had been very kind in making sure I had the right information. And I knew that there was a larger amount of money than most of the states per pupil going to D.C. Kids. And so I thought, you know, we're talking about a, a scholarship program. And I believe that one was $2,500. And they're talking about a per pupil allowance, I believe at that time, it was around $10,000 per student. And of course, it went up and went up and went up and went up. And And I thought, you know, I am so tired of people using money as an excuse not to fix schools, particularly in low-income communities. I just thought that was not a good argument at all. So we decided to continue to fight. So there were a couple of years after President Clinton vetoed that legislation that I kind of went into the community and just talked to parents because... I was being told that, you know, as long as he was an officer, it wouldn't be a good time. So when President Bush was elected, everybody felt like it would be a better time since he supported choice. And so we began to fight again.
0: And you described that, I mean, this time, one of your big opponents was Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was the... delegate from the District of Columbia. She was a non-voting member of Congress uh, because D.C. doesn't actually get a vote. And you went toe-to-toe with her in your first congressional testimony. How did that go?
1: Horribly. (laughs) her, Her big thing was you're not from D.C., so you don't have any right. I'm fourth generation Washingtonian. But at that time, I had children in D.C. schools, so I had every right to talk about D.C. schools and she told us we were being lied to, and we were given scripts, and that, you know, we shouldn't believe anything anybody told us, and that that was the problem with it. And so I left there pretty angry, that hearing, And but then as I was walking to the subway, I got angry and angry, and I went, oh, no, we're going to do this, you know, because she is not going to just talk down to us like that. So that began my wonderful relationship with her which
0: has (laughs) lasted. Right, and uh, there are are some who have said that the character in Miss Virginia, who's the legislator who opposes school choice, is a a thinly veiled reference to uh, uh, Representative Holmes Norton. Now, I want to read another paragraph from your book, because I thought this was incredibly insightful. After you describe that battle in Congress and, you know, you at the subway deciding, you know what, I'm not going to be discouraged, I'm going to keep fighting. You wrote this, quote, what opponents like Norton feared, I believe, had nothing to do with funding and everything to do with optics. The sight of children and their parents lined up to apply for scholarships would serve as visual reminders to the entire world that families sought to escape the public education system in the District of Columbia. My willingness to sit before Norton and tell her, in public no less, The parents wanted this program, infuriated and embarrassed her, end quote. And that point about funding, I mean, you were were pointing out, unlike all the other choice programs in the country, the DC program had a provision that entirely, quote, held harmless the district schools. So if a student left and took a scholarship, Congress was funding that scholarship, but Congress was continuing to fund the public schools, so the public schools weren't going to lose a dime yet they still oppose the program. So it wasn't about money. Like you said, it was about optics.
1: Yes. And, you know, and that was the one thing that really infuriated me. You know, let's talk about why we're we really doing this. And she never could. It was about optics. But, you know, there's so many members of Congress who are Democrats who, who feel like our fight 50 years ago was to get in a building. <laughs> and... I, And it wasn't. It was about getting a quality education. And my frustration was that I never could get them to understand that Ms. Dorn has a lot of power, and that's what she exercised, you know, with African-American legislators who, many of them who told me, oh, we will vote for this, but we're not going to go up against her. And that's a fact. That was actually said to me by several. And so I knew that it was going to be hard, but, you know, she had her ways of dealing with things and never, ever, for 20 years, I've been trying to figure out why she wouldn't support a program that ultimately would benefit children that were in areas of town that had voted for her. I mean, it was—it never has ceased to amaze me why she doesn't support this program. She still doesn't. And... Uh, it was very sad to me, you know, to go up against people that, to be perfectly honest, I had respected at some point in my life. And I thought a lot of, and this was not a fight I really expected among some people. You know, I knew the unions would hit us. I knew that, you know, there would be others that would not want this program, but I never really expected it from African-American legislators. I, I thought they'd look at our little kids, and say, this is, this is going primarily was going to benefit African-American children initially. It just seemed to me the right thing to do. You know, I just never got it, and I still don't. And I still, which is why, after 20 years, I still fight.
0: And yeah, you, you didn't take their opposition sitting down. Uh, you created a group, D.C. Parents for School Choice. Now, at that point, you had already been working with the Center for Educational Reform and a number of other groups. What need were you filling? Why did you decide to start this new organization instead of just joining one of the existing ones?
1: Well, you know, because I needed an organization that parents would respond to in a different kind of way, Jason. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I needed an organization that parents would respond to differently. I needed something to be a part of an organization that they felt was theirs, you know, and not... Mm -hmm a part of organizations that already existed, and the charter school movement was growing fast in D.C., and even though I support all choice, I knew that our battle was going to be for vouchers or scholarships or whatever they wanted to call it, and I knew that I needed to separate myself from everybody else to have a true parent organization and it was the right thing to do because parents flocked to it because it said DC parents for school choice. And I know that's why. I know they felt more comfortable being a part of an organization such as that, which is why I started.
0: And then your organization got a second bite at the apple. There's the 2000 election and you liked candidates on both sides. Then Governor Bush was running for president, and he was very supportive of school choice. On the other ticket, although Senator Al Gore was opposed to school choice, his running mate, uh, Senator Joseph Lieberman, had been a champion of school choice. Ultimately, the president becomes George W. Bush, who then announces that he wants to have the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship pass. So tell us about the process of fighting for that legislation.
1: Well, you know, we started in the early part of 2003. Actually, Jeff Flake from Arizona called us together in November 2002. He did a press conference that he was going to write legislation for a scholarship program for D.C. And I remember he called and said, can you bring parents? We've heard that you have access to parents that will be willing to speak. And I said, yeah. And because we had continued to organize parents even after President Clinton vetoed that first legislation. And I think 100 parents showed up. It filled the room. And at that point, other members of Congress were interested in seeing how far this could go, and they became a part of it. Representative Tom Davis, Representative John Boehner, and others. Senator Lieberman, even in the midst of kind of a weird time for us, Never didn't champion this program, ever, you know. So that began the new fight, if you will, of getting it done. I think we started fighting, going to the Hill about early 2003. And we went for 10 months every day.
0: And you describe, I mean families getting petitions signed. You handed out a bunch of uh, empty petition sheets and you were hoping for hundreds. You ended up getting like 3,000 petitions, even going to prisons and getting people to sign there because, you know, these are parents, incarcerated parents, whose children are going to these failing schools who don't want their children to end up the way they ended up. And even some of the prison guards ended up signing the petitions as well. Now, chapter 12 the aptly titled Tremors and Earthquakes, you describe many elected officials in D.C. who were previously opposed, on the record, being opposed to school choice, suddenly and in quick succession, reverse themselves and offer full-throated support for school choice. How did that happen?
1: Well, it's really interesting because so many of them did oppose school choice and told me that they were kind, but they told me that. But there was one member of the council who really supported school choice arranged for us to get a meeting with the education committee which was kevin chaffers at the time committee and a lot of parents showed up and spoke and so that was when we saw a turn in behavior and attitudes about supporting a possible scholarship program for dc but peggy kaferitz and i'm not sure people remember this she wrote this amazing op-ed in washington post that said, why not support them? Why not do something different? You know, and that was the turning point. And uh, she was an amazing woman, but always stayed, you know, kind of behind the scenes. But that op-ed turned everything around, and all of a sudden, other local elected officials and members of Congress began to say, "But this is something we should fight for." It, it-, it was a great turnaround. But we had been on the Hill for a couple of months before that happened. We had been going on the Hill and talking to members of Congress and, you know, yeah. telling them about our children. And so when, and working with National School Choice groups, Air Choice and Robin Inlow was sure. one of my biggest supporters and an amazing supporter for all parents and other organizations that were formed at that time. So when the elected officials all of a sudden reversed how they felt, it was like icing on the cake. So all of a sudden now, we not only had parents, but we had local elected officials that were supporting us and school choice organizations. It was a good time for us. We felt like we could win.
0: And you described the long road in detail, and I, I know that you know as the coalition grew, there are more and more meetings. At one point, you're, you're feeling very frustrated, like you're spending more time talking in these meetings than you are out there on the street organizing parents, and that's where Robert Enlow, who, who at the time is working for EdChoice, but it was then known as the Milton and Rose Friedman Foundation, tells you, you need to go out and do what you do best, right? You need to go organize the parents
1: they don't worry about this. Just, you know, go yeah. do what you think is the most effective he He's had a good friend for many years, for many, many
0: years. Right. You got those parents out there every single day for 10 months at Capitol Hill, 10 a.m. after they dropped their kids off at school, going around the hill, wearing your white shirt saying D.C. Parents of School of Choice, talking to the legislators. And what effect did that have when these bills started to get filed? And at one point, I think there are at least three different bills two standalone bills, ones in appropriations, how did that process work?
1: You know, well, once we got started talking, then more and more legislators started coming to us or wanting to hear our stories, wanting, you know, to see if this is something they could support. It was an amazing turnaround for us. And, you know, I remember going into legislators' offices and signing their little guest book with 100 parents and or 50 parents or sometimes 25 parents. And we'd be all over Capitol Hill. And to see us, it looked like it was way more, (laughs) you know. But at the beginning, it was maybe 50. And then it grew to 100. And then, you know, it kept growing until we think that for that whole period of time, several thousand parents were involved. And uh, members of Congress saw that. And local elected officials saw that. And they saw that we were very, very serious about this fight. We were going to make a difference in what happened to our children if it killed us. And it was a wonderful progression of the fight, if you will. And and it was amazing. But I remember one, one time we had about 25 parents on the Hill. I'm not sure if I wrote this book. I may have. I write it a lot and talk about it a lot. But a reporter or a, a member of a congressional staff, I think, came to us and said, I've seen your parents all over the hill today. I think we had parents on both sides, uh, you know, Senate and House, and and we were resting on the steps of the Capitol. And she said, "We've seen parents around here all day. How many you got? 100, 200, 300?" And I said, "Yep." And that's what was reported the next day. So that was very cool because it gave us some credibility. I believe that day we might have had 50 parents there. But when you see a bunch of parents, uh, African American. Parents, fathers and mothers walking around with white t shirt with blue letters, then it looked like a lot more, <laughs> so we went with it and uh and so that we always laugh about that because we know how there were not that many there that day, but didn't hurt us. <laughs> it helped us because then I think the Post and the Times ran articles that said hundreds of d c parents talking about you know, a scholarship program for, uh, opportunity scholarship program for kids, Take Over Capitol Hill. I I think that was one of the articles. And and we kind of chuckled at that because we knew it wasn't that many of us. But over time, it did become, because I think once the community began to feel that we may have, in fact, from serious going, it gave us credibility, more people joined us. More and more people joined us. It was wonderful.
0: And you had some incredible successes. You know, you have your bill put into appropriations, it passes the House, but then it gets caught up in the Senate. So why don't you tell us a little bit about two incidents in the Senate, Mary Landrew's poison pill and then the Kennedy filibuster?
1: Well, both great (laughs) stories. Mary Landrew, we had met with the night before went to appropriations in the Senate, which was Senator Byrd's committee. And she assured us, and there were forty of us, I think that went to her that she was going to support this bill, and that she had our back and blah blah blah. So when we left we we knew that that would be one more vote for us. Not only did she not vote for it, but she got up and gave an impassioned speech about how nobody else should support it, and which caused Senator bird to suspend the meeting and come back they were going to come back a couple of days later and vote. But as we were leaving, she approached us, and she started talking about, I guess she had to explain herself, talking about why she didn't support it and why she had changed her mind since the night before. And so one of the kids that was with us, and it had to be a school holiday because we didn't take kids out of school, Osaya said, where do your kids go to school? And she said they went to kind of a leaves private school in D.C., but our kids wouldn't be able to use the scholarship to go there because of whatever, you know, um, it wouldn't be enough, or she gave several reasons. And and Mosiah said, but we could at least apply, and she hesitated. And it really upset him, and it upset us, and because it appeared that all of a sudden she didn't think we were good enough to go to these schools. And so we, uh, our funder, who was J. Patrick Rooney and who was an amazing man and became almost like a grandfather to me and he said we have to let her constituents know this so and it's written in both books I believe and he said we're going to run a full page ad in the Times in New Orleans calling her out and so it was a great ad and people in New Orleans were really mad that's when I got my first death threats and uh but it was the truth. You know, she flipped, and it was wrong. It was just plain old wrong. So I think the two days later, when they voted again, after the a uh, few days later, after the article read, she voted present. So she never did vote mm. on it. And Senator Kennedy had announced publicly that he was going to filibuster it, which would have filibustered the government and uh, could have stopped the government. And spending bill, but so we we did another, this time on TV, and it was a ad where I was talking and they were surrounded by kids and beautiful African-American Hispanic kids. And basically all I said was, Senator Kennedy, your brother supported us, why don't you, basically. But we also read some ads from the Civil Rights Movement, so he got really mad at us. And uh, he called me. And he called you. Yeah. <laughs> at home. And so I answered the phone, and, and and I thought it was somebody playing a joke on me. And so I said, oh, come on, who is this? And he said, this is Senator Kennedy. Don't you recognize my voice? And I went, oops, uh, yeah. And uh, he said, stop spreading propaganda. You make me sound like I'm racist. And I said, well two fits or something flippant, you know, that you don't say to a United States senator, but I did. And Mm because I, you know, I was feeling pretty good about that time and hung the phone up and he did not filibuster. I don't know what he thought about after he hung the phone up or who he talked to, but he did not filibuster. So those, those were really wonderful times in our fight. It was a it was, you know, it, it was when we started realizing how much power our voices have.
0: And then it passes the House, 209 to 208 on the first vote, and then a later vote, 210 to 206, really close, and then it's signed by President Bush. So then what, right? That's a case closed, end of story, right? Or no?
1: Well, <laughs> not it was signed by President Bush, who was an amazing advocate for our group. I mean, he did shows and programs with us, he and Secretary Page, and he was just amazing in his support of this program. But then we had to implement it. We had to get out in the community and get people to sign up for it, and people didn't come. <laughs> and we're like, whoa, what happened? And so we went back out into the communities. What we were finding out is that. People who had opposed the program were in the community telling people not to sign up for it and because it was not real and it would hurt the community more than help the community and and all those kind of lies. And so we actually took teams out in the, into low-income communities where people would qualify for the program and talked to them personally. But the first try of having to sign up at the a convention center, just didn't work. People just didn't come. They were scared. They were afraid that if they signed up for the program, it somehow would affect their lives or their children's lives, or, or just crazy stuff. And but when we went out into the community, we had meetings in boys and girls clubs, and churches, and and um, people's homes. You know, and we talked to them. We answered their questions. And I think that at the at the end of the second period of signing up, or after the convention center, thousands signed up, and it and you know a lot of times these kind of programs kind of resonate through the grapevine, you know. So people, so the first year we had a lot of people to sign up by going into the community with teams, and 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 always me, and because people needed to see my face, they needed to see me there, and the second year. The grapevine in the African-American community had been so strong, so prevalent that we had lots and more. So every year it got to be more and more for those first five years.
0: And so eventually, I mean, and this is an important lesson, I think, for those around the country who want to organize. You know, the, the legislative fight is really the beginning. You get a bill passed. Now you've got the program. This program has to be implemented. And you can't just rely on the government to implement it or for the program just to implement itself. Your organization and others like yours still had to be out there making sure that people got the information, knew to sign up, you know, combated disinformation. And you describe, I mean, there's one point I should have mentioned before, all the contradictions against, you know, when they were arguing against the program, some saying, oh, no, you know, these D.C. schools are great, you know, they're we, implementing new programs and they're working. Meanwhile, other organizations are saying, oh, the, the schools are terrible, they're crumbling, we can't possibly afford to have money leave the system, even though no money was going to leave the system. Exactly. Or, you know, oh, if we have this mass exodus, it's going to be terrible. On the other hand, there are some organizations saying, oh, this this program is only going to help a select few, right? So
1: <laughs> <laughs> It was all of those days. <laughs> And more. <laughs>
0: it was the spaghetti against the wall, hoping something would stick, right?
1: Exactly. Um, and, you know, and the one that always fascinated me was, you know, we had just gotten this law passed, and all of a sudden people would go right there, gee, why lied to you? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And so it, it was a challenge, you know, getting parents to uh, get out and sign up and release information, because the kind of information they had to have was financial information, and that's hard for anybody to let folk know what their financial information is. So it was hard. It was real hard. Yeah. But it was wonderful when we'd go into a group of parents and they'd be excited and and ready to sign up and have all their paperwork. And, and sometimes we would have to help them. And, and, uh, and then we'd and getting information out about the schools and watching the kids do, you know, begin to do well in the schools that their parents had chosen, it was an amazing time.
0: You have a, a government uh, study show that they're 30% more likely to graduate from high school if you received a voucher versus the students that had applied for a voucher and did not win the voucher lottery, so it was an apples-to-apples random assignment trial comparison. So really, I mean, these these kids had, you know, access to safer schools, higher parental satisfaction, and so this is really impressive results. But then, despite these impressive results, you find yourself back in Congress trying to save the program. What happened?
1: Well, <laughs> President Obama canceled this out the first year, and the House was still...
0: And, and to be clear, by by canceled you out, you mean that in the budget that he submitted, he eliminated the program. So the program would have disappeared.
1: Right. Exactly, and so that was the initial thing we came up against, and we realized that somehow we had to convince him and you know get this program funded and back into the federal budget, and and he wasn't biting, and you know so once again we had to organize parents, but at that point you know the, the house was still under Democratic control, and then we had the mid elections, and all of a sudden the Republicans had the house again, and Representative Boehner said to me, don't worry, Virginia, we're going to get this program back. And then he became Speaker of the House, and he called me again and said, get parents together, and I'll tell you when to come up the hill to fire a press conference saying that we're going to have this program back. And, you know, everybody knows, you know, somehow he managed to get it back. I, I never really asked because I really didn't want to know, but I was just happy we got it back. And I remember going up there that day, and he said, I told you we got this back. But then the president decided that his uh, his compromise was going to be that they were going to allow the kids in the program to stay in the program, but no other children would be admitted. And there were mm-hmm. 216 letters uh, had gone out to parents telling them that they had won a scholarship. And so those parents were really disappointed. So then we had to Fight for them, you know, for the two sixteen, and and that was an amazing fight, <laughs> you know. We we uh, I remember we camped out at Secretary Duncan's office for weeks, several weeks, and with hundreds of parents, and and eventually, you know, we won. <laughs> but it was John Boehner and Senator Lieberman and Senator Collins and and other members of Congress who are, who are heroes, even to this day. They are my heroes and they are our heroes. But it was hard because President Obama had been, because he was the first African-American president, most of the people in the program had voted for him for the first time in their lives. And so what they said to me, oh, don't worry Virginia, President Obama's gonna save this program. And I had to explain to them that that wasn't going to (laughs) happen, you know, and and people cried. I mean, they were so sure that we were going to be okay. And so that was, that was hard. That's hard being an activist or an advocate when you see these kind of situations happening. It it was real hard.
0: Now, I mean, few people have as much advocacy experience in school choice or, or really in anything as, as you do. If you had a few lessons That you learned over the years, that you could distill from all your experience, what would those lessons be?
1: You know, I think what I what I do tell parents is, first thing is be strong, and always know for sure that you have every right to be there. That you can Mm -hmm. fight. You're American. You can fight for what you believe in. But you gotta stay strong, and you can't allow the opposition to make you feel that you're not doing the right thing, and or 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 make you feel frustrated or uncomfortable, which which you will feel. So my one thing to parents, and now that we have smartphones, it's even easier. But I used to tell parents, bring a picture of your child. And when somebody's mean to you, or you we lose in a hearing, or you feel bad about what you're doing, or scared, take that picture out and look at that child. That's who you're fighting for. And if you don't fight for him. Nobody else will parents are the first advocates for their children, and we have to continue and we had to then teach parents that their voices are going to be the ones that are going to be heard by the government or by anybody, but has to be in large numbers, you know, and they can't be afraid I mean even to this day sometime when and I am sometime hit with negative kinds of things i I think about my son, and I think about how well he's doing now, and I think about how he would not have done so well had I not fought for him and other children. It helps me. It calms me. And so I just tell parents to continue to step up and use their voices. Say what you feel. Organize parents in your communities, in your neighborhood, and uh, and talk to people. And sometimes people that you might not expect yourself to be talking to, you know, members of Congress, local elected officials, don't be afraid to talk to them about what you believe. Most of them are parents. Most of them had to make choices for their own children. And so that's what I tell them. I tell them be strong, be loving, be dignified, but get the job done because you can because they're your children and you have every right to be there. That's what I tell them now.
0: Well, we still have a long way to go, but we've made tremendous progress over the last two decades thanks to advocates like you. We stand on the shoulders of giants like you when we're advocating for school choice today. So thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for your decades of service to America's children.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm just so appreciative of the support I've gotten from EdChoice and other organizations through the years. It's been an amazing. Journey. And that's what I hope the movie and the book will share with
0: people. Our guest today has been Virginia Walden Ford. She's the inspiration behind the movie Miss Virginia, which you must run out and see right away. And also go get her book, School Choice A Legacy to Keep. Virginia, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. This has been another edition of Ed Choice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Idea series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media, at EdChoice, and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.